You're treating time as if it's just a fixed dimension on which we can travel, but what if there are many worlds? What if your act of time travel suddenly fractures the timeline? I don't know if you saw Avengers Endgame. They no, acted like I there was a... like a diagram of how Git works. <laughs> <laughs> That's the same. <laughs> Neato. Uh... Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So, how's it going, Chris? It's going great. It's great to have you back. I hope you had a wonderful vacation. Was it restful and adventurous and all the things you want a vacation to be? It was definitely adventurous. It was restful too, Mm. but it was definitely more adventurous because I went out to Colorado and rode horses and learned how to rope and fly fish and all that fun stuff. So that was really cool. That is a lot of fun stuff. How many computers did you use in the time that you were out doing all of those things? Zero. Excellent. That's the correct number of computers. I really like where you delete Slack from your phone, and I didn't do it. And I thought about it, and I just like didn't actually go through with it. So next time, because I really like that idea, because I caught myself wanting to look at it, but I also had the benefit of where I was, I had no cell service, or at least like very limited service. So even if I wanted to open up something that was work-related or check in on something, I really couldn't. So that helped a lot, too. Keeps you honest. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great. Well, again, welcome back. Nice to have you back. Thank you. It's great to be back. In terms of things that are new, I was so excited this week. I discovered a button, my new favorite button in the entire world. I shared this on Twitter, and based on the response, which is it's probably my most popular tweet of all time, a lot of other people care about this button. So in a Rails app, if you have pending migrations, say you've just pulled or rebased or something like that, and there are now migrations that you have not run on your local database, there is a big warning screen that Rails will put up when you first start the server. It says you have to run the migrations, but it was always just yelling at you to do something that it knew how to do, and someone went out of their way, did the good, hard, needful work, and added a button to that page that says run the migrations. And it's just, it's such a simple little thing. It wasn't even hard to run the migrations. I have a single command to do it. And yet I sell it to switch contacts. I sell it to go over. It interrupted my flow. And I just started yelling the word the button when I saw it. You were sitting next to me, so you can attest to that being my actual response. But I think that's the most excited I've seen you in a while. <laughs> I don't know what that says about the rest of my life, but here we are. You're a happy-go-lucky individual. But yes, you were extra excited about this. And that is so cool. Do we know who added that? Yes, actually, uh, local Boston dev Kevin Murphy replied to my tweet, pointing me in the direction of the original pull request, which was put forward by Gennady Semikovarov. I hope I was getting your name reasonably correct. But in the pull request, it actually introduces it as a broader feature. So it's introduce actionable errors, which I think is almost a mini framework within Rails for this sort of put other buttons in the UI when there are error pages. So that's exciting that this is perhaps the first of more than one of these sort of things. But at a minimum, I was just thrilled with the one button. If it were only this one button, I would be happy. But it looks like this is actually a more foundational change. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Keep an eye out for that button. This is in Rails 6 plus, I want to say. So you got to be on that to get it. But man, what a good button. Oh, that's a good point, because I think the product I'm working on is not Rails 6 yet. So I haven't had the chance to see it. I just saw it on your screen when you were excited about it (laughs) and immediately rolled over to see what the hullabaloo was all about. It was about a very good button. (laughs) So yeah, that basically sums up the entirety of my week. There was a button, and I was happy. But how about you? Did you make any progress on your mechanical keyboard adventures? Sort of. I think you and I have a very uh, agreeable shared custody of Greg's 
mechanical keyboard right now. <laughs> it is very amicable, yes. A very amicable custody agreement where we seem to rotate where I'll have it for a week and then you have it for a week or a couple days. But I, I'm looking because I'm getting hooked on it now or even when I'm going to a client's office, I still want the mechanical keyboard with me. But the one that Greg uses, the code keyboard, it's a bit heavy and a bit larger than some of the more compact travel size options. So I keep looking for the one that I want, but I'm really torn between color and it does the job (laughs) because I know I want the cherry, well, at least for now, I'm already thinking I may have more than one of these down the road. <laughs> like any good mechanical keyboard developer. Yeah, I this have is more the beginning yeah. of a long standing adventure in the world of mechanical keyboards for you. So I'm pretty confident I'm going to opt for the Cherry MX Brown switches. But then looking through the mechanical keyboard options, it's very hard to find the perfect compact one that I want that still has color because there's some really good options, but then they tend to be a bit more bland when Mm. it comes to the color choices. But I'm also understanding that I can get a tab remover, one of the caps remover, and then buy a set of caps and then add those on. So that might just completely open up my whole world. And also, Will Hall, who's here in the ThoughtBot office, he has a mechanical keyboard. He has the Keychron K2 mechanical keyboard, and it looks perfect. Mm. Where it's very compact, I can have it in metal or plastic, which I'm thinking plastic just because it'll be lighter for travel and still seems very durable. It has all the keys and a couple of the keys that I miss currently on the code keyboard because the code keyboard doesn't give me access to volume and changing the brightness of my screen like my Mac keyboard layout gives Mm -hmm. me right now. So I think I'm going to go down that route. And they're pretty affordable, around like $68, $70. So that's pretty awesome, too. And he was kind enough to let me borrow it today. So I spent an hour clacking. That's not a word. Clacking on it. Yeah, definitely a word. (laughs) Clacking on it. And it's different. But I think right now that's the one I'm going to get. Have you seen, do you follow Cassidy Williams on Twitter? Oh, I do. I love her. I feel like she just came out with, she's like doing a Kickstarter or something for a keycap set that looks very colorful. I don't know if you're following that as well. I did. I saw it. I think it's the astrological one. Yeah, that she. Right. Yes. Yeah, she's amazing. If anyone's not familiar with her, I think she's at Cassidu is her Twitter handle. Yes. But she makes fabulous videos. And I saw the one about the mechanical keyboard. And it's very pretty. But I'm also just not into astrology. Mm. And then it's also one of those, I don't have to wait. It's a Kickstarter. Oh, no. This needs to happen soon. Yeah. This, uh, this has to happen. Like, I want it next week. <laughs> It's good because the sooner you get it, then you can give me more feedback on what you purchased and then I get to follow along. So, all right, well, we will check in again in a few weeks and see where you have made it on the mechanical keyboard adventure. That's funny. When you said the sooner I get it, I thought you were about to say because then the sooner you get full custody of the other (laughs) keyboard. (laughs) I'm of the opinion that I should like get one for home and for work. And so I want to decide because if I'm going to have it, I want to have that balance. Although then it becomes a whole thing. Now, how many keyboards do I need? Well, I need my travel keyboard, my other... I don't know. This is maybe the start of a, a dangerous <laughs> hobby. But yeah, otherwise, what's uh, what's up in your world? So this week I did something. It's, it's kind of simple, but it had this really awesome moment to it that I enjoyed. I was updating a function. Right now, there's an existing function that takes a single argument, like a single object, and then does some work. And then I wanted to update that function to take a list of objects so then I can do some work on that list. So right now it has a record and then I was changing it to be records pluralized and then calling dot map on it. So once I made that change, that meant any place that is calling that code, I now need to go update and wrap anytime I'm passing in just a single object and wrap it in a list. So that way I'm always passing a list to this method. And that totally works and it's fine. 
but I didn't love it. I didn't love the fact that I have to go around and now anytime this method is being called, including in the test, I now have to update it to always make sure I'm giving it a list when really I'd rather be able to give it one record or list and it just do the right thing. So thanks to one of the suggestions that you gave me and then also diving into the talk that you'd mentioned from Grum, He has an excellent talk called Confident Ruby. I think it's a book as well. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I was looking at was a talk that he'd given. And in that talk, he discusses different ways of dealing with unknown data, how you can either use coercion, you can ignore it, or you could reject it. And in my case, I want to use coercion because I always want to pretend that I'm dealing with the list, even if it's not coming in as a list. So after watching that talk, he highlighted the array conversion method, which is the capital A array and parens. And that does some cool stuff where I can wrap any argument that's coming into the method in that array conversion method. And if it's given one argument, it'll convert it to a list. If it's given a list, it just stays a list. And if it's given nil, then it returns an empty list. So I now could update this function to pass in just one record or many records, but I didn't have to change any of the callers. And that was glorious. That was fun. It's great when you can make that change and add flexibility to the thing that you're working on, but then not have to go update every call site throughout the app. I feel like there's a related principle here. It may be from Unix land, but generally it's called the robustness principle. I have the Wikipedia up in front of me, so I can actually say it correctly. But it's be conservative in what you do, be liberal in what you accept from others. So this is a case where you're like, yeah, you can send me whatever, and then I will hone it in, make it correct, and then the thing that I will do or omit will always be the same sort of thing, but I'm flexible in what I'm taking in from the world. And I kind of like that. This is an example of you have this method that now zero, one, many, any of those are, are valid versions of this. So yeah, it's a fun thing. Cool. Yeah, I haven't heard of that robustness principle. But I like that idea because I really want the method to know how to handle the new arguments. I don't want to have to go and change everything else that's calling it. So yeah, that was great. Thanks for sharing that earlier with me because it led me down this fun path. I absolutely love that talk as well. I feel like that's one of my most recommended talks because it's sort of evergreen, even though it's technically in Ruby. He does the implementations in Ruby, but the ideas are much more general. They're really about code organization and confident code and what does that mean? And I feel like it's probably the thing that I've recommended the most. So glad to recommend it one more time. Thanks, Avdi. So with that, I think we can transition over. We've been building up our backlog of listener questions. Thank you again to everyone who keeps sending these in. We really appreciate them, and I think it makes the conversations more interesting and varied. So if you do want to send in a listener question, please do so at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or you can find either Steph or I on Twitter. But for this week, uh, we're actually going to go with two questions because we have a bunch of them. So the first one is about the best framework to learn to get a job. Uh, So Zachary... <laughs> that's Sorry. a big, that's a big I question. I just had to add that. <laughs> no, it's good. This is the right dramatic backdrop for us to then dig into this question. Uh, so our first question comes from Zachary, and it's around the best framework to learn to get a job. So Zachary starts with, I want to be a developer. That is the opening sentence of his email, which is fantastic and to the point. Zachary has just completed his associate's degree, and he's on his way to a BS in computer science. And he goes on to say, honestly, I don't have a preference of what type of programming I do, and it seems everyone could use some flavor of web developer. It seems true. So I turn to you with a question. There are a lot of frameworks floating around out there for web development and blog posts for days about why each specific one is the hotness right now, except I don't want the hotness. I want a job. Side note. I love that phrasing. Overall, back-end web development seems to interest me a bit more. But what frameworks and accoutrement should I learn? I understand this changes with time, but at this moment, what should I focus on learning? Zachary. So, Steph, what do you think? Mm. 
I love it. Like what you said to the except I don't want the hotness. I want a job uh, that resonates with me deeply. And I appreciate that honesty. So I think my first gut is to start using your current network to find friends of a friend of a friend who's a developer, like find someone that you can talk to, because I know that was crucial for me when I was getting into web development. Thankfully for me, my brother's a web developer, so I had him to lean on and ask just What's your day like? What kind of salary can I expect? What kind of education do I need? And just sort of ask, what do you like about your job? What do you hate about your job? And find out some of those details. Although it sounds like Zachary's already past that point and is very much interested in being a developer. But I'd start with finding a friend. I would also look for some group in my community to latch on to. It could be an online community, although I'd strongly advocate for finding someone, a local chapter in your area, just because it's a lot more fun, in my opinion, to just learn with other humans and to have people that you can lean on and understand what their learning process is like. Maybe if they're also trying to get a job, you can have stories to share with each other and how it's going. When I was living in Daytona Beach, I used to drive to Tampa because Code School had a location there. And this was before I moved to Boston and was going through the program, and I was still trying to discover more information. So I would make the trip to Tampa once a month to join their meetup that they had. And that made a huge difference for me, just being with like-minded people and understanding what they were interested in, how they were learning, what tools they were using. So those are my first two. I have a couple more that I could totally go on about, but I'm going to pause there for you. Awesome. I really like that you started not with an answer to the specific frameworks, but the more general answer of you should talk to people, because I think that's totally true. I think Zachary has the right point of view that he's less concerned with the framework. I think that can change over time. He can start with one thing, move on to another. And frankly, there are a lot of good answers to that, which we'll definitely dig into those a little bit. But I really appreciate that you started from the people answer. My story is very similar where I was self-taught. I was coming from a different industry trying to move into the world of development. It was actually through the Boston Vim meetup that I got to meet some ThoughtBotters. I asked if they would meet me for lunch one day. It happened to be Ben Ornstein and Mike Burns in specific who have been on various of our podcasts, hosts even. And went out for lunch, talked to them a little bit. And there were a couple of points in the conversation, I remember, where I would make assertions about what's true about the world. Like, oh, I absolutely must have a CS degree in order to move into this field. And they're like, well, no, we don't. Uh, and actually, a bunch of people at ThoughtBot don't. Many people at ThoughtBot do have CS degrees, but uh, a lot of us don't. And it was interesting how much my world shifted in those few conversations that I had. And eventually, that was actually the avenue that led me to the job that I have now that I absolutely love. So yeah, start with people. I think that's just a great general thing. But to actually answer the question, which framework should really? Zachary learn? We're going to go there? <laughs> well, I mean, however you want to answer that. But yeah. uh, I feel like we should give some answer to the specifics there. Or maybe say the specifics just don't matter. What do you think? I'm, I'm going to push hard and say the specifics don't matter. We can, we can also answer that just for fun and share the stuff that we lean into. And that I would, like, if I had someone next to me and they're like, yeah, I get it. I can talk to people, but I really just need, just give me a framework, name something. We can do that. I think that's the mode that we're in, because although I think many different frameworks or languages or technologies would be a fine answer, Zachary does need one. He needs to learn something so that he's got a foundation from which to build, which potentially could, like you said, come from conversations with other people. But if someone were pressing you like, yeah, yeah, yeah totally got to talk to people, get it. But tonight I'm going to do a programming tutorial. Which one should I do? Okay. I like how you phrased that question because I was about to still say like I that's too hard of a question to answer for somebody on their behalf to know like what they're going to enjoy, what they're interested in, what sort of market they're in, what kind of 
programmers, folks in their area are looking for. So I, I really wouldn't want to answer that question. But if they're doing something that's more like for fun, and I just want to, I need a framework to test out and do a tutorial, then I would look for something that has a really good, friendly tutorial. And Rails has a very strong, friendly tutorial. They also have a very friendly community, which kind of circles back to the whole, like, find people for help, because you're going to need people along the way. So I am very biased. Mm -hmm. And I would say start with Rails. I think it's a good framework. There's a lot of blog posts. There's a lot of great guides around Rails. There's even like Slack channels that you can join and people that would be eager to help you. I've noticed a lot of people in the Rails community don't come from a traditional computer science degree. And I often wonder if that's sometimes what makes the group friendlier because everyone's coming from a different walk of life and they've made their way into the Rails community in a different path. So they're a bit more empathetic to anyone else that's new and also coming to the community. So I have a big space in my heart for that group. So I'd I'd recommend Rails. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I think the Rails tutorial is the one that you're referring to there, right? The Rails tutorial. There's another one that's really popular that I'm blanking on right now. The um, Michael Hurdle. Michael Hurdle. That's the Rails tutorial. tutorial. Oh, yes, that one. Okay. Yeah. The Rails tutorial by Michael Hartle. Fantastic. That's where I got my start as well. As one additional piece to add on to this for a slightly more data-driven answer, if you want that, there is the Stack Overflow 2019 survey, which sort of pulled in a lot of data about things that are on there, asked a lot of people, what are the technologies you're working with that you want to work with that you wish you could work with? And so just to highlight a couple of the standouts, JavaScript is absolutely at the top of that list. JavaScript is eating the world. Everybody's writing JavaScript everywhere these days. So that would definitely, in terms of being a marketable skill, that definitely is one of them. Python is actually very high as well. HTML and CSS and SQL, generally, those are sort of core shared things. If you're going to be a web developer, those are good additional skill sets to have. Ruby's on there as well. It's a little further down, but I agree that some of the community aspects and the approachability of the tutorials and things makes that a great starting point. And again, none of these answers are fixed. Like as I was an engineer in a previous life, and if I wanted to switch type of engineering, that would have involved going back to school and a much more significant undertaking. Whereas programming, you can go home and learn a new thing or ideally learn it on the job. So yeah, Zachary, I wouldn't overthink it. I think you can pick any of those options. We'll include a link to the Stack Overflow survey. That can point you in a direction, but I think Steph nailed it with talk to people. And Steph has one more point. Yeah, I had one other thought because you said something, but then you quickly adjusted it as well when you were saying don't overthink it because I totally agree with you in the sense that you do have to start somewhere. But just to give credit to Zachary's question of like, I want to get paid for this, then I, I think there does have to be that thought process of it's a little bit less into the area of enjoyment now and figuring out what someone will hire them to do. And one other thought is to find a company that you like in your area or a company that you aspire to work with and the type of people or projects that you want to work on and figure out what they hire for and what tech stack they're using, because then that may also guide your choices to as to which framework you're going to use. I also had one other addition I was going to add. When I recommended Rails, I would also recommend Phoenix. Mm. I really enjoy Rails, and I think they've got a lot of the community support I would want for someone that is new to a framework and new to the Ruby language. But I noticed that when I went from working in Rails to then working on Phoenix, Phoenix has less magic in certain ways that it handles. And in some ways, that could be painful for someone that's new, but it can also be eye-opening in the beginning to understand how more of those pieces work. So I would actually recommend that one too. I would say Rails or Phoenix and maybe look at Elixir and Ruby to kind of help decide which framework you decide to go with. What do you think? 
I feel like there can be utility in making that decision for someone because I don't think the decision matters. Mm. And so I think there's the strong possibility of analysis paralysis and spending a lot of time surveying all of the languages and trying to pick just the right one. And I think, to paraphrase what you were saying earlier, like it actually doesn't matter that much. Mm. Connections and people and that stuff matters. That's how you're going to get a job. So Mm -hmm. I'm happy to just say, yeah, learn where else. It'll be fine. Mm. If you need to switch, if you need to do Python after that, that's okay too. But to just You'll have learned the concepts to help Zachary have a specific answer, I'm fine with picking an answer out of the, out no, the world. No, that's a really good point. I like that because that's that's true. Some people do just need like a push in a direction. Hopefully, in that you found pieces that will be helpful to you in your journey. And yeah, let us know how it goes. Follow up at some point. We'd love to hear. Excellent. Thank you, Zachary, for that question. And we have a second question that mm. we're going to tackle next. So this question comes from Pete McFarlane, and it's related to GraphQL. So on a recent episode, you mentioned how much you've been enjoying GraphQL and miss it on projects where you're not using it. Then you go on to say something like, but it has its trade-offs. For someone with no production GraphQL experience, could you please highlight any negative experiences you have come across while using GraphQL? It sounds like it's an amazing product, and I'd like to start introducing it into my products. I like the sound of the flexibility it gives to front-end devs and API clients. But as with nearly all products slash tools, the marketing site isn't exactly full of cons or gotchas or disadvantages. It's all of the praise and good examples. If you don't have any bad experiences, perhaps you could explain why you don't use it on every project. Is it just an adoption thing or another tool for a dev team to learn? So I think the first thing that I will say in this context is but it has its trade-offs, is true of basically everything. And for folks who've been listening, I've probably been championing both GraphQL and TypeScript pretty strongly, but I don't think either is a perfect technology. And in fact, I don't think we've come even close to finding a perfect technology for anything. So that's sort of inherent in everything. That's mostly just an aside, but in the specifics of GraphQL, I would say we at ThoughtBot are pretty much in the camp that we're going to use GraphQL for any UI supporting API that we're building moving forward. That's basically the new norm for us. We found it has sufficient benefits and is incredibly powerful. And I think it maps incredibly well to the way we think about software, which is think about it from the user's perspective, start from the design and start from the UI and build back through to the back end. That's a pretty big deal. Like if everyone at ThoughtBot's on board that we're going to start using GraphQL for like all new projects as our API endpoint. Yeah, I think we're trending in that direction. We have an internal, like a mini Stack Overflow that we used as a project to learn Haskell at one point, but now it's just our own little mini internal Stack Overflow. And there is a question that was, what are the reasons to not use GraphQL? So it turns out we actually have some internal conversation that's perfect for this. But part of what came out of that conversation was not a full edict across the organization, one, thou must use GraphQL, but treating that as our new default. That's pretty much the norm. You'll probably want to have a reason to not use it. As for reasons to not use it, I think the main things that were highlighted are GraphQL is great for user interfaces. It's maybe not ideal for service-to-service communication where you might want to use additional serialization or other things like that, but that's a thing. So to kind of segue for just a moment, because I was looking at this question, and GraphQL is something that I've heard lots about, but I have dabbled in it very little. So to help prepare for this question, I started looking up some of the reasons that people are hesitant or don't like to use GraphQL, and I thought it would be fun to run those questions by you to then find some of those negative reasons, or if you have negative experiences of your own that we want to talk through. I don't really have negative experiences, so let's play the objections game. Sounds great. All right, so on the GraphQL objections game that we're now creating live, this is great. So some of the stuff that I was reading about and searching for concerns about GraphQL, the first one is people are saying there's a lot of boilerplate code that comes with GraphQL. 
And also schema duplication was something that I saw a couple times. I can't speak heavily to either of those. Do either of those ring a bell for you? Interesting. Those are not at the top of the list of things that I typically see. In terms of boilerplate, I feel like there's not much. I guess you end up defining the entirety of your schema and the types in the back end. And so you end up enumerating these objects that are maybe very similar to your database objects. And perhaps that feels like boilerplate. I'm okay with a little bit of quote-unquote boilerplate more and more so over time. And in particular, I really like having a layer where I can introduce something. This is the product data layer, not the back end, how we store it in the database. That's a different concept. And then maybe we have Rails models that sit on top of that. And then GraphQL is this additional layer that, having worked with it now, I almost feel like it was missing before. Like I'm able to express some truths about the platform uniquely in the GraphQL layer. So I'm happy to write that code and I don't feel like it's boilerplate or I, I don't feel any pain from that. As for schema duplication, I'm not actually sure what that one would be. I guess it maybe is that same idea of like your database and your GraphQL, they look similar, but I think there's enough reason to have that differentiation that I'm happy to do it. Yeah, I think from what I was reading, that's what folks were talking about is the fact that you are duplicating what you have in Postgres or what your schema looks like. And then also having, I like how you said it, your product schema, which is an interesting complaint to me. I'd have to read further into it because my first reaction to that is that seems like a very nice layer of translation between how I'm actually storing the data versus how I want to present that data to any applications that are consuming it. So that was one of them. All right. So question number two or really it's more of a statement, flexibility isn't free. So the nature of GraphQL is that you can query combining whatever fields you want. And there's a concern that since you're asking for whichever field you want, you could end up with performance concerns and lots of M plus one queries. How do you look to avoid that sort of thing or identify if you have that performance concern? This is probably the most common one that I see talked about as performance-related things. And I will say the default implementation of GraphQL is essentially N plus ones as a service. You are just guaranteed to get a whole bunch of N plus ones. That said, there are actually some really great patterns as to how to solve them. Normally, we would lean for like database joins, depending on how our system is structured. Assuming it's a monolith and we have a just a single database in the back end, then we could use joins to fix N plus ones often, that's actually not typically the way you would do it with GraphQL. You're more often going to lean towards a batching approach. So where that N plus one is, you actually just, instead of resolving each of those leafs in the query, you hold on to a reference to say like, oh, I need the events for user one, the events for user two, the events for user three, the events for user four. Mm -hmm. Well, now I'm going to go make a query for events where the user ID is one, two, three, or four. So you just batch it all up, make one database query for that level of the GraphQL query, and you've now resolved your N plus one. There are a couple of libraries, particularly Data Loader from the core GraphQL sort of organization. And then in the Rails Ruby world, there is GraphQL Batch, which I believe comes from Shopify. So this is a relatively straightforward pattern. It's a little different. It's a new thing to learn or a different approach, but very solvable. As for the more general concern that like, well, you're just opening it up and anybody can do anything. I have not personally worked on a public facing GraphQL API. And I'll be honest, that actually concerns me that you just open up the kingdom and say, you can get whatever you want. Like GitHub's GraphQL API is public facing. They're able to do it. So it gives me faith that that's totally doable. So I have a question. When you say you open it up to the world, when you implement a GraphQL API, are you not listing the tables and fields that someone has access to? Like, is it absolutely everything by default? Well, it depends whether like it's a public facing or private, but inherent to GraphQL is the schema, which describes all of the different types and the fields on those types. 
those can be associated to each other. So whenever someone's interacting with your GraphQL API, they can query anything in that and they can traverse between related things as much as they want. So they can ask for user and give me the events. And for that event, give me all the users who are attending that and give me the events. That And you can sort of, mm. you could recursively keep doing that forever mm. in theory. That's a valid GraphQL query. Okay, It's pretty easy to prevent those. There are different ways to do analysis of the query. Just when you get it in, you're like, no, that's too deep. 10 layers is way too many. You cannot go 10 layers. You can only go five. That's a depth limit. Or there are other slightly more complicated but still pretty standard at this point ways to analyze the query and add a cost to each facet of the query that's coming in. So each field has a one-point cost. Each association has a 10-point. And maybe you know this one thing. You have to hit a back-end service. It's special. That's a 25. And you cap the query at a cost max of 100. So it's this way to turn a query, which is like, I don't know, is it too hard? You now have this mathematical way to define that and to put in a limit. That's super cool. More often, though, I don't actually see this being a problem when I work with clients. They're able to just do it. And then there's communication with the teams. There's a really nice thing that you know what people are asking for. The team, if they run into a performance issue, they're going to be like, hey, our query is really slow. And then you can actually have a conversation. And there are actually some really interesting ways to break a query apart. You can defer a portion of a query or you can stream the results. So imagine that you have a big page that has a bunch of reviews down at the bottom of it. They're below the fold. People aren't going to see them. You don't need it to render the first view of the screen. But you do want to make that one big GraphQL query. You could, in theory, defer those reviews within the big query that you're making. And then if your GraphQL server is sufficiently capable to handle that, this is sort of an advanced GraphQL feature. But you'll get the first data, all the stuff that you need to paint the top. And then eventually you'll get the rest of it, which are the reviews. They'll come down in like a long, opened HTTP connection sort of thing. So GraphQL actually has built into it some really nice ways to not have to change your development workflow, but be like, oh, this query is actually taking a while. Turns out it's just the reviews, though. We don't need those initially. Let's just defer them. And in the query, not even doing extra code side things or saying make two requests, you're still making one request, mm -hmm. but you're declaratively saying, oh, just defer that till later. Like we can wait for that, but please give me the name and the title and those sort of things first. Cool. Yeah, I think you answered one of the other questions in there as well, where you mentioned the depth, because that was another concern when someone was saying they open up like this public API. And if someone could request like a recursive fields, and then they could lead to maybe like a distributed denial of service type of attack or those mm -hmm. types of vulnerabilities. But it sounds like the depth would be a great way to prevent that. So one of the other concerns I saw was regarding caching at the HTTP layer, mm. since I'm sure you've probably heard of this one. I love this one. Oh, good. Just to explain it in case anyone hasn't heard of it before, um, since GraphQL will expose a post endpoint, HTTP at the caching layer will not cache post requests since it's not idempotent. It will cache get request. So we were losing HTTP caching at that point with GraphQL is the concern. So yeah, you seem excited. So I'm excited. I like this question. There's a lot of fun stuff packed up into this. The first bit is the fact, as you rightly highlighted, typically GraphQL uses post. The reason it uses a post as its request is GraphQL queries can actually get really big, especially mutations. Because mutation tends to say, do this thing and give me back this data. And then you have variables, and it just grows and grows and grows. And suddenly you have these really big pieces of data that you want to send as your query. And a get request has a limitation of like 1,024 characters or something like that. There's a limit in terms of how much you can strap onto the end of a URL. And so right. a post right. does not have that limit. We use the post body to get around that. That is not a requirement. You can actually use get for GraphQL. Fundamentally, caching of an API is really important when you have a ton of different little API requests. Like It's not uncommon to see 
10, 20, 50 requests to paint a single page in many single page apps or mobile apps. And in that case, you absolutely need millisecond performance for each of those API responses. But if you're making one big request and you can wait, say, 500 milliseconds for that, Mm -hmm. the caching maybe isn't quite as important. Now, just saying that you can't do it isn't an okay answer in my mind, but it's nice that the default is like, you actually don't need to worry about performance, in my experience, as much when you're first starting up with a GraphQL API because the ability to batch everything together like just making one request instead of making 10 is so much more important than having the fastest possible requests. So just to make sure I understand, the benefit is the fact that, one, like you just said, you have less requests. So you're losing some performance at the HTTP caching layer, but you're reducing the number of requests. And you're also perhaps reducing your payload size, depending, because now you have control over the fields that you're getting back. So maybe you're hitting four different endpoints that all give you like 10 fields each, but you really only need one field from each endpoint. So that also saves some performance there. Yes. I don't think I said that, but that is definitely true. And so an excellent addition. <laughs> that, that's what I took from it. <laughs> uh, cool. <laughs> but yes, that is definitely true. You're getting back a smaller payload. You're getting exactly the payload that you need. And you're able to change that over time. So as your needs change, your payload changes with that. So you only pay the return cost of what you've actually asked for. But the last really cool little bit that you can do here is by default, you're making these requests. They go over post. And yes, it's completely open. and You can do whatever you want. But a lot of organizations for security and scalability reasons, we'll move to something called persisted queries, which is in development, you're able to make any query that you want. You go over post, that's that. But at build time, when you're producing a new artifact, a new release of your app, Mm -hmm. you'll actually take that query, turn it into essentially a checksum that represents it. So an MD5 type hash or maybe shot or whatever, but a known fixed length string that is perfectly fine to tunnel over get. And you register that in some query registry so that when you send in the string ABC 18245, whatever it is, that query registry knows, oh, you're asking for this big GraphQL query. We've now aliased that. And so you can make the request with much less data. And now you can use a GET request so you can cache at the HTTP layer again. So it's got a bunch of benefits. And you can actually lock down your API so that people can't get anything they want. They can only ask for the approved set of queries. So it's like rest but on demand but better. Oh, okay. That's neat. Yeah, I hadn't heard about that part. It's a fancy trick. I've actually not done it because it's, it's a fancy thing that tends to not be necessary. But it's really nice knowing that that's sort of a backstop in this conversation of like, if we need to, we can really bust out the big guns and go all the way to this persisted queries thing. And we get security, we get performance, we get caching back, we get all of these things. So that is an interesting continuation of that. Awesome. Well, I think that concludes this game of GraphQL objections. <laughs> that was cool. I love how you're willing to like be put on the spot and have those types of questions. So that was a lot of fun to go through. And thank you to Pete for sending in such a great question. That was a lot of fun to answer. And I certainly learned some new things about GraphQL along the way. So I think with that, we can wrap up. Shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.